All right. Well, welcome, Zoomers. Good to see you guys. Welcome, you guys. Uh, welcome, guests. Love you guys. Now, you're not really guests. They're your friends. Welcome, friends. So, uh, so we're going to start out today. We're going to have communion here in a little bit. And um, I actually am kind of excited about talking about what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, there'll be time for, for questions or comments or anything. And uh, you know the routine. If not, Ronnie, I'll show you. You, you get up and ask some questions. You guys on Zoom, just make some noise and we'll get to you. Rather keep an eye on that. So I, I made some introductory comments a couple of weeks ago, and then we had uh, a couple of speakers. We had the privilege of having uh, Bill Vanderbush last Thursday. And I, did you guys enjoy Bill? Yeah, I did too. And then Ben, <clears throat> I, loved, uh, I loved what Ben had to say. I loved meeting him. I'd, Richard and I had met him before, but we got a chance to get to know each other a little bit. You guys had a chance to spend some time with him. And uh, he was amazing. And the situation uh, in those brick kiln, that slavery, really shows you how important it is to understand the victory that Jesus has over stuff. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And uh, celebrating Jesus' victory over sin with love. And I don't know if you guys remember or not, but this scripture and this declaration by John the Baptist is what caused me to start looking into this and feel like this was the direction we were supposed to dig in a little bit on. And it's pretty basic. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Look, he said, there's the Lamb of God. He's the one who takes away the world's sins. And I, I started by asking the question, what does that mean that Jesus took away the sin of the world? And uh, assuming that it is the truth, it's a declaration of the truth, uh, why do we still give the kind of attention and the kind of energy to sin that we do in both our doctrine and in our in our practice and our prayer and our personal devotion and everything else? So it led me on some questions uh, and, and a good course. Um, in the course of, of not having to prepare for last week, I, I've been doing quite a bit of reading. In particular, I've been reading some stuff from N.T. Wright, in particular of N.T. Wright stuff. I've been reading uh, The Day the Revolution Began. Has anybody read that book? Okay. It's a really good book. Tom, have you dug into it yet? No? Yes? No? All right, cool. Uh, are you into it far enough to have an opinion yet? Okay. Uh, I'm not done with it either. I'm not done with it, and I've had it a lot longer than you. So uh, I am going to talk a little bit about something that has come to my attention through Dr. Wright's teaching. And... Uh, We'll get into it. So the essence of Jesus' victory over sin is what I've called this, in, in pulling from this scripture. This is what we started with two weeks ago. But now, quite apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, God's covenant justice has been displayed. Now, if you're familiar with the Romans 3 passage, this is from N.T. Wright's New Testament. And rather than translate dikaiosune as righteousness, meaning God's righteousness, he has made a substantial case of which I am 99% a believer now, that this is a really accurate rendering of this, that the specific thing that is the righteousness of God is his faithfulness to the covenant, his faithfulness to his promises. 
And that there is a transfer of that covenant faithfulness that can happen and does happen because of what Jesus has done in our life. So that's enough commentary on that. But that's why it says God's covenant justice. Uh, But now, quite apart from the law, though the law and prophets bore witness to it, God's covenant justice has been displayed. God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. For the benefit of all who have faith, for there is no distinction. All sinned and fell short of the glory of God, and by God's grace they are freely declared to be in the right, to be members of the covenant through the redemption which is found in the Messiah Jesus. And that last phrase is kind of important. Well, all these phrases are pretty dense, but through the redemption which is found in the Messiah Jesus. Now, what are we talking about when we're talking about that redemption? And that's a huge question. And you can ask that question among different believers of different denominations, different theological elders, and you'll get a whole lot of different explanations. As you guys know, if you know me, I like trying to let the Scripture speak about questions like that as clearly as it can and as simply as it can. And so Ephesians 1, uh, and the reason there's an 8a in there is because the sentence crosses over. Ephesians 1, 8a, or Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says, "...in Him we have redemption through His blood." Then there's a comma and a phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the rich of his grace which he lavished on us. So regardless, hi you guys, regardless of what we want to describe redemption as, and we can have all kinds of auction illustrations, we can have all kinds of antique restoration illustrations, we can have all kinds of buyback from slavery. I'm not saying those things don't have truth to them. But let's not forget and let's not let our, our expanded definition substitute for what the Word says right here. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So regardless of whatever else it might be, the fact that your and my sins, transgressions, trespasses, are forgiven is a major player, a major core, a major part of our redemption. And our sins were why we needed to be redeemed, if that's true. Okay? So just keep that in mind for a second. That leads me to our covenant, and that leads me to make some comments about one of the things I liked about Bill Vanderbush last week. Because Bill jumped in and brought his perspective of the covenant, which was very close to ours, but he was very enthusiastic about it. And it's been a long time since I've sat with somebody who was enthusiastic about the covenant that we were engaged in and thought there was something to learn about it, uh, or any covenant for that matter, really. Covenants are, I don't know, they're weird. They're like uh, stuffy conversations among people who are like theology nerds. But... I don't think it's that at all. And and last week when Bill was talking about that, and if you remember, uh, the question or the comment that I had at the end of his presentation was what if, if a correct understanding of the covenant proves to us that it's not conditional, at least not from God's part in it. And, uh, and so keep that in mind a little bit as we look forward a little bit. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to revisit the new covenant, but I went back and I wanted to do it out of Jeremiah. And in the process of doing that, and the reason is this is one of the things I've learned from N.T. Wright. Um, Most translations, most uh, contemporary English translations, translate 
uh, Christos is Christ. But I find that that sounds more like a title than a description of his ministry. Some, uh, David Billing Hearts, for instance, which I read and use quite a bit, translates it the anointed one or something like that. And that's closer to the description and not so much like a title. And then, like I say, I, I, I don't know where I was talking to somebody. I was talking to somebody that, or maybe I was listening to a video or something, but they said, yeah, uh, I was ministering to somebody the other day that thought Christ was his last name. Like it was Joseph and Mary Christ and Jesus Christ. So, you know, I don't think anybody here thinks that. But, yeah, but one of the things that N.T. Wright does in his translation, and you saw it there in the Romans passage, is through Jesus the Messiah. So he translates that as Messiah a lot. And, and his point in doing that, or his reason for doing that, is because he likes to keep in front of us, in front of himself, in front of people, the fact that Paul was a Jew, and he would have thought of Jesus in Messianic terms, and the sad truth that we're going to probably dig into a little bit today is that we don't. As a matter of fact, I can honestly say, and I don't say this with really any any bitterness or criticism, because I didn't know any better, and neither did they, apparently. Uh, I went through Bible school, and I don't recall a single time where there was any emphasis whatsoever put on Jesus being the Messiah. As a matter of fact, later in my life, there was some cautionary stuff about it because of messianic stuff and getting back in legalism and stuff like that. So I, I, I just, uh, it caught my eye when, when he uh, emphasized that point. And the reason for that point I think it's just 100% right on because if you lose touch of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, God's Messiah, then you, you, you are never drawn back to the fact that his ministry, life, death, resurrection, teach, everything connected us with all the promises of scripture from the beginning and connected us as the natural extension of God's rule and reign that he desired to do through Israel, even though Israel in many ways failed to be able to reach out and bring in the Gentiles and do all this kind of stuff. So it's not a plus, minus, or indifferent. It's just that this idea of thinking of Jesus as the Messiah connects us to some very rich history. And more importantly than that, it, it directly connects us with promises that are amazing. So for instance, in Romans, in the early chapters of Romans, if... Uh, it's almost like the story of Abraham is a is just an illustration of somebody who had faith, not so much a natural flow of restoration connecting us back with Abraham's actual place as the father of many nations and the father of faith. Yes, Ronnie. Since I believe we're on. Are you okay? We're on. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, since Christ isn't Jesus' last name and Jesus the Messiah, it sounds like we're going to focus a little bit on Messiah. Can you give a little bit of a definition of Messiah? Of Messiah? <laughs> Yeshua HaMashiach. Okay. Um, oh, gosh. How do you give a or, little? Or how about the part we're going to be focusing on tonight? You just fleshed it out a little bit about... Yeah you know, promises and things like that. Okay. Um, 
Israel was not absolutely clear about how to think about or talk about the Messiah. There were promises of a redeeming warrior or a redeeming king. Um, For much of Israel, they did not have any idea that that king would offer any form of a sacrifice. Later, through a couple of the the prophets, there was another figure called the servant. And that's prophesied predominantly in Isaiah, uh, around 53 in that area. And that one was, was the suffering servant, but it was not a universal consensus in Israel that that was the Messiah. By and large, the Messiah was thought to be a warrior king in the line of David that was coming back to uh, overthrow the pagan um, bondages that Israel was subjected to, uh, restore them from exile, and, you know, kick butt and take names and reclaim the throne of David. So uh, in, as, as stuff went on, the suffering servant and the Messiah image kind of merged. And where, if my understanding is correct, and you are tapping my understanding, uh, so I can't really tell you it's correct. I think it is. Um, what came out of that, uh, came out of it during the period uh, known as the Maccabean revolts and the Maccabee family, and they pushed back against Rome. And, and this was, uh, it was an amazing time, really, when they threw off uh, oppression of, of uh, I think it was Antiochus Epiphanes. And anyhow, it wasn't a permanent situation because obviously Rome took back over. But it was when the, the idea of the suffering servant and the possibility of uh, uh, Judas Maccabees and his brothers becoming martyrs, that they suffered for the nation, um, is when the idea of the suffering servant that's spoken of in, in a couple of places in Psalms and in Isaiah, and the warrior king. So you get it a little bit in Jesus because, uh, just in the questions, so after Jesus rose from the dead, there was still the, the warrior king messianic thought that his disciples said, is now the time that you're going to return uh, the kingdom to Israel. And he says, no, that's not for your time, no, but wait in Jerusalem, you'll be in the power on high. Uh, there was a thought of the warrior king running around the Roman hierarchy and leaders, and there was a thought uh, uh, um, and that's one of the reasons that they were open to kill Jesus. And as a matter of fact, it's a very significant thing that it was the Romans, not the Jews, and certainly not Jesus' people and disciples, that put the sign on his cross, this is the king of the Jews in three languages, so everybody knew it. The Jews, uh, Jewish leaders actually came and said, you should change that and say he said he's the king of the Jews, which of course he didn't do. But uh, they said, no, what we've written, we've written. So it's a lot of prophetic stuff. Uh, I don't know. Does that help at all? That's kind of a history lesson. Um, but what was the thought? In other words, what's the importance of Jesus being a Messiah? Okay. Oh, all right. Let's understand. So all of that I should have finished. I, I finished one sentence prematurely. So we have a tremendous advantage over the historic Jews and over all of the people of that time, even his own disciples, because we know he's the Messiah. 
And now we understand what he was doing. Now we understand that he was restoring and fulfilling all of these promises as the suffering servant and as the king. So that's just what you got to hold on to. And then hopefully in a minute, it'll make a little more sense. It's a good question. Um, so the reason we're having communion is because Jesus, in just a minute, is going to say again, this is my blood of the new covenant. And I want us to take this and I want us to think about what he accomplished in the context of this. And I want us to think about this in the context of this covenant that he accomplished. All right. So now I have to go back and we're going to tackle. That's okay. We're going to tackle the, the, the new covenant. It's prophesied in Jeremiah. And since it was inaugurated by the shed blood of the Messiah and fulfilled in that, uh, crafted by that, then there's no reason not to go back and see the promises that are surrounded this prophecy in Jeremiah. Otherwise, we, we could look in Hebrews chapter 8, and it's a good place to look. And there's a couple of little changes, but this is cool. So anyway, Jeremiah, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, when Jeremiah prophesied this, I'm virtually positive there was nobody that was thinking, this was speaking about a covenant that would extend beyond the borders of Israel and embrace the Gentiles. Maybe somebody was. But that is the meaning of this, and you're going to see that in just a second. On the other hand, when, the, when you talk to most Christians today and they talk about the new covenant, they do not associate it with the promise that was given to Israel and Judah. As a matter of fact, it's sort of a perplexing thing like, well, what if this is just a promise to Israel and Judah? And it's because we have disconnected ourselves so dramatically from the promises of God from creation and the fact that he is redeeming the whole world and that he was choosing a people as his own to begin that redemption process and to manifest that redemption process through from Abraham's family, even though he said to Abraham, the whole world will be blessed by you, right? Okay, so anyhow. But this is the covenant which uh, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. There's a couple of points out of the prophecy of Jeremiah as it relates to this covenant that I love the clarity on. The last line down here, for I will forgive their iniquity. In the uh, most translations of the version in Hebrews 8, it says, I will have mercy on their iniquity. Forgiveness is what we're talking about. Forgiveness is what we're talking about. There's no doubt about it. Forgiveness is what we're talking about in mercy too. And that's the thing we're going to see here. Um, the other one I like here is they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. That has always been for me and everybody I've talked to, all the pastor friends I have and everything else. That's always been a perplexing clause in the new covenant because it seems to defy the need for evangelism. When you read it in Jeremiah's prophecy about Israel, well, Everybody in Israel knew Yahweh 
was Yahweh. You know what I mean? I mean, whether they were fallen, whether they were apostate, whether they were in exile, didn't matter. So it, it, it doesn't jar you here. It, it means relational renewal, right? It means the nation to whom God came to live in the midst of is going to once again know him. It means the same thing in the covenant now. We just don't think of it that way, and we're going to understand why in a little bit. So, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I'll remember no more. Now, there was an assurance attached to this that doesn't necessarily come through because the writer of Hebrews makes the point about covenants changing and passing away and stuff like that. Jeremiah doesn't do that. Jeremiah lays this out as, a, as an ass, uh, assurance on the faithfulness of this covenant. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease to be a nation before me forever. You understand what that means? Unless the heavens go black and the order of things stop, this covenant is going to happen. That's a pretty strong assurance. Here's another one. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. You might have an arrogant sort of scientific materialist today say, well, yeah, we can measure it because we got Doppler or whatever, you know. <laughs> but this is a prophecy made to a bunch of people who looked up into the night skies with their eyeballs. This isn't going anywhere. This is a better understanding, too. It's a better heart understanding when we say that this new covenant is the covenant that uh, uh, appeals all the way back to the covenant with Abraham, appeals all the way back to the creative promise, the promises of creation. It also begins to bring scriptures that are confusing as all get-outs for most people into light, like uh, Romans chapter 8, where creation was subject to futility, uh, not of its own doing, but in hopes that... Um, uh, it would it would be there for the revealing of the sons of, the, uh, of God, the glory of the sons of God. I butchered that, but nevertheless, that's what it says, something like that. Anyway, I want you to see the assurance of this thing. This is a big deal. This is from the beginning. This is what God started when he created the world. It's what he started when he redeemed the world through the flood. It's what he started with Abraham. It's what he worked on through Moses and the law. And it's it was all pointing to the covenant. Okay. Now this is the last, these are contiguous verses following the prophecy. I'm not trying to throw anything in there. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out further straight ahead to the hill of Gareb. Then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as Brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. All right, now, I am beyond my understanding on this passage of Scripture, but two things jumped out at me that I just wanted to share with you, even if I can't defend it or explain it. See that phrase? What are that talking about? Anybody know? Uh, uh, the, the, 
the Valley of Hinnom. That is what it's talking about. The Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna. One of the five words that is sloppily translated hell. Gehenna. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes. And then this next one. And all the fields as far as the Brook Kidron. That just triggered something in me. Triggered this. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is the beginning of John 18 after the uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Here's what I see out of this. Thing. Just, I am like thoroughly excited. This prophecy is being affirmed prophetically by all of these assurances, by all of these admonitions, and by the declaration that we see something of in the book of Revelation with the New Jerusalem taking its place. And it specifically mentions the Valley of Hinnom and the place of the betrayal of Jesus being contained within that glorified Jerusalem, rebuilt Jerusalem, boundless city in which the gates are always open. Now, I'm not trying to preach a message on anything that will make anybody mad, but that's two pretty amazing references. And I bet you if I knew anything about the other towers and all that other stuff, it'd probably be amazing too. So I'm going to look at it, but uh, I really do... (laughs) This is the scope and promise of the new covenant. It reaches all the way and, 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 and speaks into the fulfillment of the new Jerusalem. This is a bigger deal. And it will not be plucked up or overthrown ever again. So the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, that's not it. The absence of Jerusalem's uh, presence or significance for however many years it was, you know, after that until 60 years ago or whatever. Not, that's not the end of the story. God's faithful. And that, when you think about what Tom Wright says about the covenant, is God's covenant faithfulness. He's never forgotten his promise, never. And it's, it's fresh in his mind. And Jesus knew what he was getting into when he came, and he understood that it was more than just one of those roles, Ronnie, more than just the role of overthrowing the Romans. That's why he wasn't overly concerned with that. But... uh Did Rome get overthrown? Yes. It absolutely did. It collapsed under the weight of the growth of the church. All right. Back to these verses real quick. Quite apart from the law, though the law and prophets bore witness to us, God's covenant justice has been displayed. God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. For the benefit of all who have faith, for there is no distinction. All sinned and fell short of the glory of God's glory, and by God's grace, they are freely declared to be in the right to the members of the covenant through the redemption which is found in Jesus. To the members of the covenant. That's us. That's us. At the very least, that is us. This is the covenant that governs your relationship with God and His heartfelt, grace-given love for you. That's why the new covenant's a big deal. And that's why it's as important to see it as, as a big deal or as big a deal that it is. And the thing you asked, Ronnie, that I gave you that awkward uh, history lesson on, 
It's not just about conquest, but it is about that. We are more than conquerors. It's not just about suffering and sacrifice, but it is about that. Because we are called to suffer with him. And it gives reason, it, it makes it make sense. All right. Uh, I got to back up. I want us to take communion now. And you guys just do it virtually, or if you got stuff at home, go ahead and go for it. Uh, Jesus said, where did I put that? I thought I had it on here someplace. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. I got to have it on there. Well, I thought I had it on there for sure. What are we doing here? No, no, no. Okay. Well, let's do it anyway. One of the things we're going to encounter after I power through these next two slides and maybe skip them is I want to ask the question, try to answer it. Why don't we think like this already? And communion illustrates the fruit of not thinking properly about this. This covenant is the biggest deal there is. Literally, it's been on the heart of the Father since before creation. It's the thing that makes us children of God. It's the thing that guarantees our assurance and our hope. It's the precursor to the fulfillment of the new heaven and the new earth. It's as big as you could possibly imagine. And this is given to us to represent the blood of Jesus Christ, yes, Yeshua, God's salvation, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fulfillment to the covenant with David to have someone on the throne all the time, forever. That's what this is. Now, how many of you have ever struggled under the sort of assumption that Partaking in communion is fundamentally about self-examination to make sure I don't have any undone sin. And, uh, and then we had no idea what it meant to properly discern the body. <laughs> we just did it. In a minute, yeah, I got time. In a minute, we're going to begin to tackle why that is, why we think that way, and why our view of what Jesus did on the cross what he did through the shedding of his blood and what happened and what is covenanted and released in this new covenant is so small. And it provides so little actual benefit to our lives and to our spirits because it's not supposed to. So what I want you to do is I want you to come up here and I'm going to pray for the, the bread here. Take some of this, just scoot back to your seats. And I want you to think about the magnitude of that covenant that was prophesied in uh, Jeremiah. Think about that magnitude and that this is that. This is the earthly. This is the natural. The, this is the sacramental reality of that. Okay? So, Father, thank you for the new covenant made in the blood of Jesus. 
Thank you, Jesus, for the giving of your body, for it being broken for us, bruised for us. Thank you that, Holy Spirit, you are going to lift our understanding. You're going to lift our hearts and our minds and our spirits into a renewed freshness, a renewed intimacy with the power of these elements of Jesus' bruised body and shed blood. We're going to be lifted beyond what we thought atonement was into the freedom from sin and the freedom from slavery that this represents. Thank you in Jesus' name. So come on up. Or actually, I could bring it to you. All right. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would simply lead us deeper into the truth of the covenant, deeper into the truth of what Jesus accomplished, deeper into the truth of forgiveness of our sins and that he was the lamb that took away the sins of the world, deeper into the truth of healing to the point of it manifesting as you desire it to in our bodies, and in our minds, in our hearts, in all the places that we can be injured or wounded or sick. Extend that to Laurel, to the kids in the back. We leave ourselves in your hand. And Jesus, we do this in remembrance of you. This is Paul in... Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Okay. My main point in this right now is not that, but it's that this covenant that we're engaged in touches every area of our lives. And discerning ourselves as part of the body must be discerning ourselves as part of the promise of God that has been extended. It's not just this church. It's not just a believer here or a believer there or two or three believers here or there. It's not just the nation of Israel uh, as an isolated group of people. It is the heart of God to reach out to the world. And this is the structure in which he's doing that. Okay? Let's see where we are here. Okay. This I have to just throw at you as a new reference point before we talk about the rest of the stuff. This is out of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, and then down to 7 and 8. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see how that ties this line of thinking into the cross? So Paul's saying that. Skip a couple of verses, just because I needed the time. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, 
the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This links Jesus' crucifixion to a larger story. It links it to a story of Roman power, Jewish power. It leads us to a story of principalities and powers. It leads us to a story of demonic control yielded by humanity. The kind of stuff that the devil prompted Jesus or tempted Jesus with when he went out into the wilderness. If you'll just bow down before me, I'll, I'll get you to your goal. I'll get you all this stuff. Okay? In Colossians, and this is a super dense one, but this is Paul writing again. In the same way, though you were dead in legal offenses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Jesus, forgiving us all our offenses. What you and I just ate with our bodies, with our mouth, with our heart, is the, it's the sacrament of this reality. At one point we were dead, but now God made you alive together with Jesus, forgiving all your offenses, all your sins. He blotted out the handwriting that was against us, some kind of record. Who knows what that is? You know, it could be a tacit referral to the law, but it could be a, a lot of other stuff too. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are in, 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 uh, encapsulated in society, accusations and, and judgments and things like that. He took it out of the way, uh, opposing us with its legal demands. He took it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He stripped the rulers and the authorities of their armor and displayed them contemptuously to public view, celebrating his triumph over them. Jesus didn't just die because you sinned to take care of that one and my sin. He died to overthrow a broken system, a usurped system, usurped by demonic power, usurped by powers that had worked their way through society like authoritarianism, sex, money, war, he died to destroy these things. That's what this covenant is about. That's the scope of it, the authority of it. And we're going to talk definitely more about that next week. Now, why don't we see this covenant forgiveness and this deliverance from these powers of oppression, of uh, demonic control? Why don't we see it more clearly? And that's what I want to talk about for just a few minutes, and we're not going to have a ton of time, I guarantee it. But, okay, the way we've been taught is that what we just went through is a picture that is designed for us to, uh, well, it's, it's like this. So we sinned against God and His commands, and that's why we need this bloodshed. That's what the atonement's for, Right? We sinned against God's command, and uh, as a result, we need to be punished, judged, and punished. Then the whole idea of atonement, which is what these things represent, is that uh, 
Somehow, Jesus came between us and God's anger. We were sinners because we violated a command, one or more, or many, if you were a good sinner. The result was that we had to be judged and punished because of God's justice, because of his holiness, because of whatever variety of reasons. It's overly simplistic, but you know what I'm talking about, right? All right. This is the way it seems to be in Scripture. This is what I'm learning, and this is what I'm excited about us wrapping our heads around. We're not going to be able to get it done tonight for sure, but this first part is we surrendered to a lie and abdicated our role and destiny as God's image bearer and steward of creation. We lost touch with who we were, who we were created to be. We bought a lie that by pursuing the fruit of the tree of good and evil, we could be made wise. We would be like God. That was the thing. All right? Now, the difference in this and this can kind of be summed up in one of those familiar verses I had up there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is not how precisely God can walk in perfect conformity to a moral code. The glory of God is the fullness of all the creation that he has created and established. And we have fallen short of that. And Jesus came to reveal his role in that and the, who we are to be. Does that make sense? So just think about it. This is a greater picture of, of the horror of failure in sin than the fact that we violated a couple of commandments. This is the giving away. The uh, N.T. Wright calls it a, a failure to worship. That's what this covenant is restoring. That's what this blood is cleansing us from. What this all led to was fear, hiding, hostility. We read about it in Colossians where Paul says that you were uh, hostile in mind. Um, no, you were alienated in mind, hostile, alienated, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. That's the progression. In another place, he says, Paul says, or in Ephesians, he says, you were without hope and without God in this world. But then, man, what follows that is a beautiful thing. Fear, hiding, and hostility. You know what this looked like with individuals of Adam and Eve, right? Uh, Adam turned on Eve. They started blaming, blaming God. The serpent did it. You know, everybody's blaming everything. And then they hid, right? Made fig coverings and so on. 
What this does when it talks about the people as a whole is it is uh, enslavement to those powers, political power, sex, money, but also just the enslavement to fear, isolation, a sense of not knowing who you are, a loss of worth. The other thing about this, and this is how it's characterized throughout the history of Israel and what Jesus came to overturn, exile. The people of God being under the hand of oppressors. That is where we are until Jesus comes and takes us away. And the solution to exile, and this I don't have time to go into, I will definitely hit it hard, is the forgiveness of sin. So the forgiveness of sin and deliverance from exile and this enslavement, that's it. Now, unfortunately, the goal, the conclusion over here is to go to heaven. Actually, it's to leave earth. It's to escape earth. Escape life. Let's put it that way. Escape life. Go to heaven. The goal over here is entirely different than that. It is to reawaken to and to recapture our glory as image bearers and our role as stewards of the glory of creation being offered to the Father and the glory of God being manifest in creation. I don't know how to get all that in that little tiny space. Huh? Amen. Recover glory and image. Honestly, that last bit is why I'm excited about digging into this and trying to understand it better because I spent way too many years of my life. Um, I've spent way too much time kind of trying to live in just the, the idea of, of if just getting somebody, or Dan, how do you say it? Thrown across the threshold of heaven? <laughs> yeah. No, this is restored. Dan Moeller says it this way, if you guys remember. Dan says, hey, Jesus didn't come to uh, uh, take you to heaven. He came to get heaven back in you. And that's really the truth. The whole concept of going to heaven is somewhat bizarre and unbiblical. The concept of heaven and earth being made new and coming back is very biblical. So there's, there's stuff we have to think about by this. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll probably start from about here. Let me see if there's anything I need to touch on. I don't think so. I wanted an example, and I wanted us to be able to think about it. So I will say this. I've got probably four minutes before Laurel comes down. We know what the other image of atonement and all that Jesus did does. It means you, you confess your sin, you say prayer, you try to live right, you become a disciple, you share with other people. If it all works out, you go to heaven in the end. Think about the biblical narrative and things that are associated with the death and resurrection of Jesus that never get plugged in when we talk about being atoned for or being saved or any of that kind of thing or even being a disciple, for that matter. So when it was evening of that day, this is John 20, Jesus is resurrected. 
The first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Listen carefully, please. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he said this, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And I guarantee you, as a guy who was a a Protestant, evangelical, and then Pentecostal and charismatic, this verse always sent chills down my spine. What the heck does that mean? And what are you asking me? to do. Or maybe it was just the disciples because they were apostles after all, blah, blah, blah. But do you understand how if we understand correctly what Jesus came to be and do, and in fact did with his blood, he brought about the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to get into the magnitude of that next time. But this was the first commission out of the box after the resurrection. Because the issue was exile is over. Sins are forgiven. I used to sit and try to figure out, well, what would be the occasion where you would want me to retain their sins? I don't know. But that's not what this is inviting us to realize. So my thought was, seeing as how we're not worried about escaping earth and going to heaven, right? At least we're going to act like we're not until we digest all this. But let's work just for the sake of, of the conversation. Let's say that that's not actually the goal. The goal is actually stepping back in to the place where the Spirit of God can fill and lead us in such a way that we manifest the glory and destiny that God gave us and that the words in Romans chapter 8 become true. That creation is is anxiously waiting for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. And you're those sons and that glory is being revealed in this covenant, in, in this victory of Jesus, okay? That's where it goes. I just pulled the closest current issue to mind. Can we apply verse 23 to politics and cultural division? Now, we live in a place where we are confronted with this all the time with social media and Facebook posts and all this kind of stuff. You get the news, whether you get it from the right side of the aisle or the left side of the aisle, it's all about this stuff. There's people constantly uh, making fun of the blunderings that uh, that President Biden does, and I, I certainly am sympathetic to the temptation to do that. There's also people harping on on our side and political sides. and that's, But what I'm saying is, Have any of us ever given a thought that we might be able to extend the core of this covenant over some of these politicians or some of the people on Facebook that are so crazy and wild and seemingly thoughtless and harsh? Could we extend forgiveness in a meaningful way to somebody in Antifa or to people in our families that don't see the way we see it? And if you say no, if your initial thought is no, I don't have the authority to do that. 
I would challenge you to rethink what we talked about tonight, if possible. Because I think we do. I think that's what Jesus came, lived, died, and rose for. Now, do I know how that plays out? I couldn't give you a sketch of that if my life depended on it right now. But have you even tried it? No, because we think that all this that Jesus did and all that he sacrificed and suffered and all that he overcame with resurrection is so that the fact that, you know, I looked at porn when I was young and I'm forgiven of that and someday I'll be able to go to heaven and it won't be held against me. No. It's because I grew up in a darkened land and I didn't know that I carried the very image of the creator in my body. I didn't know that I had the ability to shine that loving light on somebody else and to intercede in the midst of a dark situation. And we have dark situations. I mean, I think some of our politicians are shrouded in darkness. But I don't know what it means if you forgive the sins of any their sins have been forgiven. I don't know what that means exactly, but I know what it probably doesn't mean if you join in the mindless cultural chorus of judgment and criticism, you're not doing that. You're not even deliberately saying, no, I think they sin too much. I'm going to not forgive them and they're going to be retained. I mean, I'd even love it if somebody told me that's what they thought they were doing. I want us to be conscious of what Christ redeemed in us, and see if we can think about it in some of these examples. And that's just one I pulled off the top of my head. But I know it's one that's threatening, and it's one that's scary to think about. But what if what Jesus said to the disciples is true? And what if it applies to us by virtue of us being the the fruit of their work and their belief? What if you have that kind of power to extend the covenant and the kingdom of that covenant just a couple of steps at a time with people. And you don't have to pick the person you hate the most for your mental experiment and your heart experiment. Just think about somebody, somebody in your life that you can extend the beauty of this to. Yes, Sonny. Yeah, I haven't thought about this in years, but and it just came up... Uh... Jack Hayford, his brother-in-law, he hadn't said he had a bad attitude against him because he talked to him about God and there was such resistance that his heart got really hard. And he finally realized, I got to forgive this issue, forgive. And he did. And he said within just a short amount of time, there was a release, and this guy came to know God. So I think part of that is, by the story, is we can actually bind up, partner with the enemy, and not release the covenant, like in our participation. Yeah, I'm and, afraid so. I'm afraid there's some, that's part of it. Yeah. yeah, so, but that that's kind of where he... To enter into agreements with it. things like accusations and stuff, as opposed to the incredible privilege that we have to let this be real in people's lives. And again, guys, I'm with you as a novice at this. But I know this is what the covenant is about. It is about the release of the exile and the darkness that people are trapped in 
And not just the people we like, but the people we don't. The people. You know, maybe we should restrict ourselves to practicing on people we actually know. Um, But just, would you think about it with me? What do we have the power to do as redeemed sons and daughters of God? And have we, have we put that to the test? Lord, we ask for your blessing in the form of uh, no shame, no guilt, just understanding, just courage and faith. And Lord, help, and I haven't been able to do a good job at all of articulating the details of this tonight, but help us understand that this covenant and our life and your atonement is based on God's faithfulness to it. The new covenant is even crafted between you and the Father. And we're along for the ride. But we are along for the ride. Jesus, you said in that day, you will know. And so Holy Spirit, I ask you to lead us deeply into this knowing that that Jesus is in his Father, that we're in him, and that he's in us. And he is the King and the Lord of this covenant. Our sins are forgiven. And so are the sins of the whole world. Help us understand what that means. Help us understand and release the linear, time-oriented conditionality in our thinking about this. And let us not look at what it looks like on the horizontal level yet before we gaze at what it looks at from your position in your heart. And then see if we can't step up into that and manifest it down here in new ways. I believe we can. And I thank you for it. Thank you, Lord.